which Jesus has a run-in with the authorities. And it's an awkward week, a strange week, to be looking at issues of authority. Uh, We as human beings in a fallen world only know authority, that is the, the right to exert power. We only know authority in its fallen form. Uh, We only know authority where it is prone to abuse, whether it's in a family or in a workplace, in the school, or in the street. It's just this week that a man by the name of Alton Sterling, 37 years old, was selling compact discs outside the Triple S food market in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, when he was fatally shot by police officers who had been called to the scene by a homeless man with whom Alton had had a disagreement. And then Philando Castile, age 32, pulled over by the police, shot while reaching for his wallet. And then the shootings of police officers assassinations, really, in Dallas, Texas, even a shooting in Baldwin in West St. Louis County. Uh, There are a lot of unanswered questions that we have, and I am not here to give an authoritative interpretation of these events. I don't have that authority. I don't have that perspective. I don't even understand exactly what is true in a lot of these situations. And we all have different responses to it. Some of us, our response is one of sorrow and grief. You don't have to have all the answers to grieve the fact that there are people dead who should probably not be dead. Shock or loss. Some, it may be a feeling of ambivalence. You're just not sure. You could feel this way, but you could feel that way too, and you don't know. Others are filled with a great deal of anger because these things keep happening, whether it's one thing or whether it's another. We only know authority in its fallen state. And we're looking this morning at one who had a run-in with the authorities in ancient Israel, one who the authorities wanted dead. We're going to look at a passage in Matthew chapter 21. If you want to look in your pew Bible, we're going to be on page 1532, 1533. Follow along. I'm going to be looking at Matthew 21, verses 23 through 46. This is the gospel of Christ. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the leaders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you this authority? And Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or was it from men? They discussed it among themselves, and they said, yes, if we say from heaven, he's going to ask them, why didn't you believe him? But if we say it's from men, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, 
Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and he said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered, but later changed his mind and he actually went. Then the father went to the other son and he said the the same thing. And and he answered, I will, sir. But that son didn't go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? Well, the first, they answered. And Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, and he put a wall around it, and he dug a wine press in it, and he built a watchtower, and then he rented the vineyard to some farmers, and he went away on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. That's his rent. And the tenants seized his servants, and they beat one, and they killed the other, and they stoned a third, and he sent other servants to them more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. And last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. And so they took him, and they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. And therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Well, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. And Jesus said to them, Have you read in the scriptures, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, Jesus says, I tell you, that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. And they looked for a way to arrest him, But they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that Jesus was a prophet. The question, as Jesus defines it, the question is about Jesus' authority over his vineyard. There was a teenager in Ontario, Canada. True story. Guy was out watering his lawn. Teenager comes, blaring through the intersection, goes right through a stop sign. And, and he recognizes this teenager. He goes over to him. He stops his car. He says, what were you thinking? You just blew through that stop sign. And the teenager said, well, of course I did. It's got a white border around it. It seems that this teenager, new driver, 
had some buddies who had shared with him a certain urban legend that there are two kinds of stop signs, those that don't have a border, those have the force of law, and then there are the ones that have the white border around them, and those stop signs, they said, were optional. You could have killed someone. Jesus is talking about the authority, the authority that he has over his vineyard. Uh, In fact, the authorities themselves defined it as an issue of authority. In verse 23, they go up to Jesus and they stop him, they accost him, they say, by what authority are you teaching here? And then later on, right after that, they say, and who gave you this authority? And then Jesus responds to them, and he acknowledges, verse 24, he concurs that, yes, this is an issue of authority. Human authorities, finite, failing, often self-absorbed, maybe some of them really meaning well and trying to do their jobs, but these are the chief priests and the chief elders of the people, the political and religious powers that be that are coming together now to confront Jesus because they are the authority And how dare you question our authority? By what authority do you teach these things right here in the temple courts? It's an issue of human authority going head-to-head with the authority of Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. Specifically, this was a question of authority. Jesus says authority over his vineyard in verse 37. And he tells this story about workers in the vineyard who, who didn't like the vineyard owner. They didn't want to give the vineyard owner the fruit that was due. They bore him no fruit, and they were hard-hearted, and ultimately they plotted and killed the vineyard owner's son. The vineyard is an image. Throughout the Old Testament, in the prophets, the vineyard is a picture of Israel, that place that the Lord has chosen as his very own, where his people live, where his Israel lives, the people of God, the vineyard of God, whose purpose is to bear much fruit in service to the Lord. Jesus is not here talking about his authority over the world. That's certainly brought up later in Matthew. Uh, Here he's talking specifically about his authority over his vineyard, over Israel, over the church, over the people of God. And he's talking to the leaders of the people of God. He's talking to the pastors. He's talking to the rulers of the synagogues and the, the priests in the temple and the elders of the people Israel. He's talking to the session. He's talking to people like me. And the question is, Is Jesus really head of Israel? Is Jesus really head of the church? This isn't a text about forcing non-Christians outside the church to act like Christians. That's not the authority that's in view. The authority in view here is the authority of Jesus over you if you claim to be a Christian and over us if we indeed are the vineyard of God, the Israel of God, his church. It's talking about rebellion against the authority of the Son of God. And some of you know what rebellion is. Uh, you, you see it perhaps in certain members of your family or perhaps in yourself. Um, when it's a kid, it can be kind of cute, and you have to check yourself to not smile. I remember uh, once, uh, um, uh, well, there he is, um, once being at, at Eric and Michelle Kenyon's house when John was a little, little tiny guy, like pre-K at Freedom School, 
uh, or maybe it was kindergarten, I can't remember. He was like four or five years old, really little. And, and, and John, we were in your living room. You probably don't remember this because you were like really little. Uh, but, uh, you know, some friends were over, and so there was a little baby toddler really there as well. And there was one of those toys that has different shaped holes in it, if I remember right, and different shaped pieces that go in those holes, and a little hammer that you can hammer those pieces into those holes. And John was was playing with the hammer, having a good time with the hammer. And then this little toddler started putting her little hands and tiny little soft, fluffy fingers all over those holes and all over those things. And John was hammering away, and I, you know, was picturing a trip to to Children's Hospital, which was really just a few blocks away. Um, and uh, it's, I, I said to little, little John, like, uh, yeah, John, um, you might want to put the hammer down for a while because um, I'm worried about this little girl's little tiny fingers. And, and it was kind of funny because he looked at me and he put his hands on his hip and he said, you're not the boss of me. And you know, John, you had a really good argument because as your pastor, I have no authority whatsoever to discipline you in any way, shape, or form. I'm just a guy who tells you about Jesus. Now, the, the, the interesting thing, though, is in just two rooms over in the kitchen, your bosses were. And, uh, and so I remember, you know, you know like, like uh, walking you in there so that you could share with them. And, you know, the second time you said it, it came out more of, uh, you're not the boss of me? You know, it's the kind of thing as an adult, you know, when a kid's really, really little and really cute and being really rebellious, you kind of sometimes have to, like, bite the inside of your cheeks so that you don't smile, especially if it's not your child. And, uh, but, you know, how often am I sitting there looking up at God with my, my hands on my hips saying, you're not the boss of me. That's something we all do. There, there's some area in all of our lives. And do you really believe the authority of Jesus over every single corner of your life. This is the vineyard, the Lord's vineyard. Does he have the right to have his way, to have his say, to get his will done in his vineyard? Are there corners of your life where you're, where you are rejecting that authority and holding up your hand and saying, Jesus, you can go this far, but you can't come in here. You can't come in this room. This room's under my authority. I get my way in here. I acknowledge no other Lord here. This one's mine. I don't know if I trust you, Jesus. I don't know if I let you in this part of my life. I don't know that I trust you to make the best decisions for my future if I let go of this. So you can't come in here, Jesus flouting his authority, rejecting it. Maybe it involves old wounds that run really deep in your life. Maybe it's a relationship that you're not really willing to submit to Christ, a decision where you've already ruled out certain options, saying, God, it has to be this or it has to be that, when he's saying, no, I have something different for you. And you're going to have to let go of that. Maybe it's your marriage or your family or your sex life or your finances where you know Jesus wants you to hold things loosely, investing in his kingdom and not your own, but you're saying, no, Lord, not this room. You can have the rest of the vineyard, but you can't have this part of the vineyard. This part's mine. Maybe it's your worship life, which he says not to neglect, but you're just not ready to trust him with that. Maybe it's a harshness that you've let develop in your own heart toward the poor or toward people that you've begun to look down upon, where Jesus is telling you that you have to change. 
Maybe for some of you, it's a harshness in your heart towards activists with the Black Lives Matter movement. For others of you, maybe it's a resentment and a hatred of those in authority, of law enforcement officers. Ask Jesus to show you where you're rejecting his authority over your life. Lord, show me where am I saying I want to chart my own life. Where, where am I shutting you out of your vineyard? Friends, how are you responding to the personal authority of the resurrected Christ over your life? Verse 38, it's because we think we know what's best. They're the people in the vineyard, they say, let's kill the son and take his inheritance. See, if we just eliminate Jesus from this part of our life, we'll prosper. We'll do well. Cornelius Plantinga says it this way. He says, A proud person tries to reinvent reality, making ourselves the center of our world. He tries to redraw the borders of human behavior to suit himself, displacing God as the Lord and boundary keeper of life. At bottom, the proud fool, he says, is out of touch with reality. For of course our wills are not sovereign. We are not really our own centers, our own anchors, or our own lawgivers. We have not made ourselves. We cannot keep ourselves. We cannot ultimately oblige or even forgive ourselves. The image of ourselves as center of the world is fantasy, perhaps in the sheer detachment from reality, even a form of madness. So we're not the center of our own universe. And it's madness to think and act as if we are. It's what Lucifer said in Milton's Paradise Lost. It is better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. You know, think back to the first three requests in the Lord's Prayer. I pray this every night. I uh, use it to structure my time of prayer Uh, Seven requests, and the first three are not about us. Before we get to anything about my daily bread and my needs, before we get to anything about even forgiving me and me forgiving others, before we get to anything about delivering me from the evil one, it's God, may your name be treated as something holy. It's a request. Hallowed be thy name. May it be treated as holy. And may your kingdom come in all its saving power, and may your will be done here on earth as is in heaven. It's, it's not just a, a prayer. It's a whole posture of life and attitude of the heart, a place of peace and resolution where, where you've worked out what it is that you're really looking for in life. And what you long for, your thirst, your hunger, is not your own glory. It's God, if you're actually real, if you're actually there, it's your glory, Lord. His supremacy over all, the saving, healing kingship of Jesus over everything, a reality reordered and reoriented rightly to God, his name and his honor and his love and his authority, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Just think of the incredible freedom that awaits you when you can pass through a deliberate threshold where you're giving up planning the future and charting your course. You're giving up results and you're giving up control of consequences. You're not trying to navigate how you're going to get where you need to get anymore. You're just saying, God, whatever you want, I accept it. 
before you show it to me, before you tell me what to do, I'm saying, yes, Lord Jesus Christ first. Passing through that deliberate threshold. You see, if you have to hear what he has to say before you decide whether to obey him, you are already living a life of radical disobedience. You're rejecting his authority already because you're treating him as a consultant and you're going to weigh what he says and then make your decision. Jesus says to have authority over his vineyard, that looks like saying, yes, Lord, what do you want? You are my Savior. Here I am. And entrusting him to show you and trusting him to give you the strength and the motivation and the power to go about doing his will. It's incredibly freeing to say, Lord, I will follow you wherever you lead. See, the chief priests and the religious leaders, these other authorities, they may all be frauds. Some of them, they may be crooks, they may be charlatans, but the Lord Jesus is the Son sent into his vineyard, Lord. I belong to you. George Whitfield, the English Anglican, said, let the name of Whitfield perish so long as God is glorified. Jesus is saying, this is about my authority over my vineyard, my church, over you if you claim to follow me. And there are two ways we reject this authority. He tells this story about two sons. It's not the only time he's told a story like this. It's like in the Gospel of Luke where there's the son that goes off and lives a wild, disobedient life, and there's the other son that stays home, the good son that always does the right thing. And they both hate their father, and they both want him dead, and they both demand their inheritance, and only one of them that we know of comes to the Lord, and it's the sinful one who knows he needs a Savior. Jesus identifies two sons here. One says, yes, I'll do whatever you want, and then doesn't do it. That's the religious son. That's the the rulers, the elders of the people. That's the chief priests saying that they serve the Lord when they don't. And then there's the other son that says, no, I'm not going to do what you do, but then they actually end up doing it because they get convicted, and God redeems that. And that he describes as the prostitutes and the tax collectors. You see, there are two ways. You can be damned because of your sin, or you can be damned because of your self-righteousness. Flannery O'Connor understood this in her 1952 novel, Wise Blood. Flannery O'Connor tells the story of returning World War II vet Hazel, or Hayes Motes, who is so traumatized by his own crisis of faith that he starts an anti-religious ministry in his rather eccentric uh, southern town. Now, Hayes' grandfather had been a traveling preacher, and even in childhood, Hayes was haunted by the thought of Jesus. He was, he was terrified of this figure in his mind of Jesus Christ. Um, O'Connor writes this. He says, Later, Moats saw Jesus move from tree to tree in the back of his mind, a wild, ragged figure motioning him to turn around and come out into the dark where Jesus might be waiting on the water and, 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 not, and, and he might end up on the water and not know it and then suddenly realize he's walking on water and drowned and die. Hazel Moats as a boy was so terrified of Jesus that he considered becoming a preacher a sinless, righteous, obedient preacher as a way to avoid Jesus. O'Connor writes this, The boy didn't need to hear it. There was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him. 
that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. See, if I'm upright, I don't need a Savior. If I've got it together, I don't need somebody to rescue me. And you see what it gained the priests and the elders. They were people-pleasing. They were living in fear. And you'll know you're there if you're living in fear and constantly trying to please other people. They were duplicitous and cowardly and bitter even to the point of violence, paying lip service to God, but their hearts weren't tender but cold toward him. Are you the kind of person... If this is you, are you the kind of person who's always having to remind yourself that you'll just have to be so patient with those other people? You know, when other people are just so irritating, and you tell yourself you'll just have to forgive them again because they didn't get it just right, or they didn't say it just right, or they didn't do it just right. If so, then you're the religious brother, whether or not you think yourself religious. You see, that whole narrative in your head assumes that the problem is with whom? Everybody else. I'm not the problem. It's all these idiots, all these fools, all these buffoons, all these people who can't get out of my way, who can't get out of my lane, who, 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 who are hindering me and holding me up and just can't seem to get anything right. When you might be the one who's judging everybody else, Assuming your own superiority, your own lofty heights of wisdom, stooping down to bear with all those foolish people beneath you. You think you just need more patience, but you don't. You need Jesus to forgive you of your critical, self-righteous, judgmental, superior, arrogant heart. See, the religious brother who says he'll obey is in worse shape than the tax collector or the prostitute because he thinks the problem is them and not himself. Jesus said, people who think they're healthy don't need a doctor. A couple weeks ago, Keith shared the story of Jeffrey Dahmer, the 1990s serial killer, murderer, and cannibal who shocked the nation with his atrocities and left a trail of victims in grief and sorrow. And Keith shared how in prison, Jeffrey Dahmer met regularly with a Baptist preacher and ultimately put his faith in Jesus to forgive his sins and trusted Jesus to be his Lord. And a few months before Dahmer was murdered in prison by another prisoner, Jeffrey Dahmer was baptized into Jesus Christ and joined the company of those who were redeemed. Some of you might have gotten a little bit offended by that thought. To follow up with Keith, I want to imagine that you pass away It's going to happen eventually unless Jesus comes back sooner rather than later. And you get to heaven. And you walk into the glorious throne room of heaven and you're assigned a small group that you're going to be a part of where you're going to learn about God now that you're no longer sinful. You're there with the Lord and all of his people through all of time. And and as you go to your small group, uh, you find out that the leader of your small group in heaven is a guy by the name of Jeffrey Dahmer. And as you walk into your small group in heaven that first afternoon in in the presence of God, you walk through the door and everybody's there and Jeffrey Dahmer's there and Jeffrey Dahmer is staring at you and his eyes are getting bigger and bigger. His eyes are getting huge. His jaw has dropped. He's pointing at you. He gasps. He says, I never thought I'd see you here. That's what Jesus is saying. The tax collectors and the prostitutes 
are entering the kingdom ahead of you. See, grace is free in Jesus. It's free, and he makes it that way, but that makes it really hard when what you're holding on to is your own righteousness because that's the one thing that all of us have to give up in order to have the saving power of Jesus, and that's a hard thing when you think that you're righteous. Adam Jones quotes Dan Allender on this. says, The cost of the recipient of God's grace is nothing, and no price could be higher for arrogant people to pay. Jones describes wanting to punch grace right in the mouth for the way that it's such an affront to his pride. Sometimes, he says, you just want to swing at it and give it all you've gotten, but then when you're worn out from swinging and you fall broken into his grace, you just fall into his arms. You've just had enough of the exhausting attempt to be good. You see, there are two ways to reject Christ's authority over your life. You can do it by living life your way, or you can do it through your own self-righteousness and seeking a life of religious accomplishment. So, where is there hope for prostitutes and tax collectors like us to actually find a place in the Lord's vineyard? Remember again who it is who wrote this account. This was written by Matthew. We're learning of this from Matthew. Matthew had been a tax collector. That meant that he was a mobster. He was mafia. He had a gang of people. He was a crook. He stole from people and left a trail of victims a mile long. And then what happened to him is Jesus walked up to him right there at his tax booth collecting his money, his ill-gotten gain, and Jesus tapped him on the shoulder and said, follow me. And his life was changed. His life was transformed. You know, look at this story here of the workers in the vineyard. You know, they, they throw out the first messenger. They kill the next messenger. And then the owner of the vineyard sends his son. And they, they conspire to kill his son. And, and then judgment is to come. Remember, that vineyard is Israel. It's the house of God. It's his people. It's his family. And Jesus even asks them, how's the story going to end? And they say, it's not going to end well. He's going to show those people a thing or two. And so what then happened to allow tax collectors and prostitutes to come in and have life in God's vineyard? What made it possible? What made it possible, friends, is that the owner's son died. That's what opened the door. It's the supreme irony that God took our worst act of rebellion, killing the Son of God, and redeemed even that evil to become the very instrument through which our salvation comes. We might think, well, that seems to be implied, Greg, but it isn't stated explicitly, and that's because you are not a first-century Palestinian Jew. Were you a first-century Palestinian Jew, you would have seen Jesus saying this really quite explicitly because Jesus starts to quote a song that every Jew in Palestine would have known by heart. It was one of 150 songs that they sang in their synagogues, that they sang in the temple. We know it as Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It wasn't the song of mourning. He's talking about his vineyard. He's talking about the church. And he's saying that the son's rejection by the builders, 
the stone that they rejected becomes the cornerstone on which a new house is built where tax collectors and sinners and scribes and elders and priests can all come and work in the vineyard of God. Jesus, you know, they're sitting there. They want him dead. They're plotting to kill him. And what is Jesus doing? He's giving them the gospel that God is going to take our tight-fisted rebellion against the authority of his son and use that that rejected stone to become the cornerstone so tax collectors and sinners can go into the very presence of the Lord. Jesus said, I must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, and be killed. But that's what makes salvation free to anyone who can see themselves in this parable. Psalm 118 is not a song of mourning. It's a jubilant song. It's a song of release. It's a song of victory. It's a song of God's redemption. And when you can see yourself as that tax collector, when you see yourself as the prostitute, then you can enter into the jubilation of the song. The Son of God we rejected has now become our cornerstone. The vineyard is now given to a people who will produce its fruit. The tax collectors, the prostitutes are now entering the kingdom ahead of everyone else. And now we can sing the song of redemption for the worst of sinners. Sinners like us, religious rebels and irreligious rebels alike rescued by the Son of God that we killed. Now comes the song of salvation. The Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. I've got a photo here. This young man is Richie Knight III. He was 19 years old. San Diego, California, outside the Linda Vista Recreation Center. He was a Kearney High School basketball standout on, on April 25th, 2013. He was stabbed multiple times. He was rushed to a hospital. And Richie laid in the hospital bed for five days. His injuries were deep. And they were severe. And the doctors and the staff did everything they could. But after five days, Richie, at the age of 19, died. Got another photo of the white man who killed him. This is Ian Ellis, also 19 years old, convicted in the murder of Richie Knight III. We have a third photo here. This woman is Tamika Brown. This is Richie's mom, the victim's mother. She was asked to speak to the court at the sentencing of her son's killer. She had planned to focus her remarks on the son that she lost two years earlier on the hopes, the dreams, the memories of what was taken from her. But as she stood in that courtroom, she directed her comments instead to the white man who took the life of her eldest child. We have a video here. Can we play the video? This is what happened. Only God knows why I'm not angry or why I don't hate you. Would it shock you to hear that I love you? I thought to myself (laughs) one day a while back, don't lock him up. Sentence him to my home. Let him be my son. 
but he took away from me. And I want to sing this song. So you think that you can make it through. Just remember, my God cares for you. Don't you worry, don't you fret. Because the bed you lay in, my Savior, he's there for you to have met. Don't give up, don't give in. Today make Jesus Christ your number one friend. So I will close by saying, although we are free to choose, we are not free to choose the consequences of the choices we've made. So how, so now that you know who you are and how purposeful your life can be, you have a new choice of new life. Choose Jesus Christ today. If you can't do anything else, please do that for me. That was Tamika Brown, the mother of 19-year-old Richie Knight. Knight was stabbed in 2013 at the Linda Vista Recreation Center when a fight broke out between a large group of people. Knight graduated from Kearney High School in 2012 and was described by his friends as a standout basketball player. He had been rehearsing at the Recreation Center for the annual Linda Vista Multicultural Fair at the time he was killed. The suspect, 19-year-old Ian Ellis, pleaded guilty to manslaughter. Even the judge was stunned by Knight's mother's song of forgiveness. I've done a lot of homicide sentencing. And Mr. Ellis, I want you to know I have never heard anything like this. And I think Mr. Bessie would tell you the same. Friends, that's the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel, not just to forgive you of your sins, but to give you the very power through which you can forgive your worst enemy, a woman of color, African-American woman whose eldest son was taken from her by a white man. And there before the judge, she could plead for his soul and tell him the good news that Jesus really is there and he really does save. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks for your power to save We consecrate to you the elements on this table, Lord, that you administer the gospel to us to form us into a gospel culture that we might have the grace that you gave to that woman when she faced the one who took her son. Lord, you know what it is like, Father, to lose your son. You handed him over for our salvation. And for that, we give you thanks. In Christ's name, amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. And let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is good and right to give him thanks and praise. And if you are here and you are a Christian and you are wanting to come to Jesus in this and ready to come with empty hands, then this is for you. For it was on that night in which he was betrayed that the Lord Jesus took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, take this and eat. This is my body. It is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, for the Lord Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Friends, great is the mystery of faith. Christ is God. Christ is risen. Christ is risen.
Therefore, let us keep the feast. 